Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 126 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are extremely excited on this, the Christmas week. You know, we're coming at you with fresh content. You know, none of this. Oh, we're taking a break. We are going to be taking a break, but not right now. Instead, we got two amazing guests on, long time coming. Uh, the host of Left Reckoning, Matt Leck and David Griscom, are on TMK. Uh, thank you boys for coming on. I'm so excited to talk with y'all. Happy to be here. I'm very, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of TMK myself. So yeah, likewise, I'm very happy to be hanging out with y'all this uh, afternoon, evening, I guess, wherever you're at. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're spread out a little. We're spread out a little. But no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because I'm also a big fan of both of you. You know, I, I do want to throw it over to you guys in a minute to talk about the left reckoning project um because i think it's very interesting it's very necessary but i also want to say that you know it's coming out of a lineage uh you know this is a big moment for me because i've been listening to to matt and david talking in my ears for for many years now going back to the uh michael brooks show days the tmbs days that just a huge influence on the the style and substance of my own leftism was really kind of bringing me into the the dirtbag left you know kind of sphere but but mostly thinking about like you know it was really listening to y'all talking on TMBS that expanded my leftism to be a lot more international in focus um, the style of a lot of that kind of like real passion and righteous indignation that I think motivates a lot of the really crisp and necessary analysis that uh, you guys have been doing for a very long time. You know, just, just very, I'm very excited to be talking with y'all um, for that reason. And so could you tell us a little bit about the Left Reckoning Project? Because I think if there's not a lot of crossover between listeners of TMK and listeners of, of Left Reckoning, then there definitely should be, because um, we're coming at the world in very similar ways, but I think uh, taking different kind of focuses and different approaches, um, or rather not different approaches, but different topics in terms of how we look at the world through a kind of materialist, historical, political economy. Yeah, David, how about you take that? You're, you're the best at uh, elaborating our mission. Well, I mean, first of all, I got to say, you know, you're too kind. I'm really thrilled to be on, on TMK too. I mean, people, I mean, we'll definitely be telling people who are listening to our show too, that they should be checking this out because I do agree that they, they sort of, you know, we do come out of like a, a similar lineage. I mean, left reckoning, it's a few different things at once. I mean, the first and foremost uh, part of the project was that this came out of the Michael Brooks show. And, you know, Matt and I know each other through our, our friend, uh, the great Michael Brooks, who unfortunately has passed away recently. And he taught us so much, you know, not just about politics, but a, a way of orienting yourself, right? As you're saying, it's like, you know, being righteous is an important thing, but not being self-righteous, right? Also trying to mix like, you know, we're going to have fun and we're going to joke around. We're not going to take things too, too seriously. But when things matter, it's okay to be earnest. Um, and that was something that I also learned from Michael because so much, especially of like left media, really is like detached. You know, these are real questions and like real things that affect people's lives. You know, but that's I like on the spiritual level, like that's a lot of what we're trying to bring with left reckoning. On the actual like content level, you know, Matt and I wanted to continue doing the international focus work that we were doing on the Michael Brooks show. But we wanted to come at it from a different angle. You know, I'm from Texas and I lived across the South growing up and Matt is from North Dakota. And we have this realization that like almost every kind of left wing project 
is pretty much based in New York City. A couple of them may be in Los <laughs> Angeles. But I particularly was getting really frustrated when everybody was talking about, you know, defunding the police, right, um, over the pandemic. And Austin, Texas was a city, and it's not a perfect example or anything like that, but it, they had like a massive defund movement that was successful in pulling money away from the police department. And nobody ever talked about it, right? Everyone was still sort of talking about things in the hypothetical. Um, and it, it was just a kind of realization that's like, well, people aren't talking about these kind of these topics because they're not rooted anywhere elsewhere than just, you know, a couple of the big cities. So Matt and I wanted to continue bringing that kind of international perspective. So we talk a lot about Brazil and Peru and, um, you know, Chile. Um, um, we want to continue doing that international work, but also sort of rooting it in a lot of different parts of the country. So we do coverage of things that are going on in Alabama, like the Warrior Matt Cole strike. Um, we talk about things that are going on here in Texas, like the fight for public power, like the fight against these massive oil companies and the fight for a just transition. We talk about the Dakotas as they're trying to erase you know, Native American history there. We talk about the Civil War and like lost cause mythology and things like that. Like We really just want to bring a perspective of, of people who might not come from you know, these kind of blue states or these northern states or California um, and say that, like, not only is there a left wing project there, but you can be an internationalist and be from Texas and like still be a Texan, too. Right. That's a big part of, of what we're trying to do with Left Reckoning as well. It's sort of like claiming that 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 space of like internationalism and, and being a socialist without doing what a lot of people from that part of the country, in my experience, do. Uh, wants to become a leftist as they start to turn their back on like their community and their people. They're like, well, I'm the one who got away or I'm the one who broke from it. Right. Um, and we call it left reckoning not to be too cute, but because like, you know, we think that there should be a left reckoning with the, <laughs> the status quo and the society. Um, but also we're sort of in this moment post Bernie and, and for us post Michael and a lot of other people who have taught us so much that we are sort of in this moment where it's just as important to be thinking. Um, and, you know, and uh, we're also sort of sitting here like without any kind of gods or masters, being able to instruct us and in trying to find a, a way out of the, <laughs> the moment that we're in. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I just want to say, you know, it's really nice to hear, Jathan, uh, you were listening to TMBS. Like TMBS, it seemed like it was going for a long time looking back on it now. But at the time, it was a whirlwind of like, I guess, three years or so. And we didn't really have a sense of like, <laughs> it, it, it really surprised me to hear you say that, to be honest, the first time I found out about that, because, you know, you get a sense of like the, the people who interact with your stuff on like Twitter and they're listening to it on a day to day basis, but that you're getting out there and the amount of places that Michael's death was announced, like Newsweek and stuff like that is just um, preposterous. But what I appreciated and just to circle back is we don't, I, at least I personally don't have, David's a little bit better than me than I am, but like the encyclopedic knowledge of everything that's going on across the globe um, in international politics. And so we also have our own sort of emphases. And one of them that I've been returning to is the technology bit. Um, so like with when I found This Machine Kills, what I really liked about it was I went, the reason I'm out in New York is because I went to grad school, NYU, a technology and society uh, uh, emphasis in um, uh, media, culture, and communication. And that was where um, uh uh, I first was exposed to like Evgeny Morozov and stuff like that. And when I found this machine kills, it was like, so after I, I left college in like 2014, you know, I got deeper into leftism because it was difficult to uh, make that student loan pay. And so you start listening <laughs> to like David Harvey on Marxism and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> um, but like what I liked about this machine kills, um, I think is, is that you guys are doing what I would have liked to think that I would have been doing if I stayed focused on the technology beat in that instead of going into like basically the general leftism. I met Michael at the Majority Report, which is like in the name also like that's a really big tent sort of leftism show, um, kind of like the, the kind of trying to be like the um, 
John Stewart type of thing of it. with TMBS. It was like, we were ready to do something more. Okay. We get it. <laughs> like Congress is bought. Um, but, um, and let's talk about other, like how like global resistance to this sort of stuff. Um, that's where the TMBS came from. But yeah, like I said, um, the, this machine kills tech focus and the way you guys, I think th- that skepticism is so important now. Like, I mean, not to get mm-hmm. ahead of ourselves, but it's just depressing. Like the amount, when I went to school, it was very, probably at the tail end of the techno utopian sort of let's go to uh, Steve Jobs unveiling the new iPhone as if it's like a Messiah revelation. And and now, like, we've moved beyond that, but still, like, venture capitalists are deciding how societies uh, function. And uh, it's that's becoming an increasing preoccupation of our show. Yeah, it really does seem like it's uh, it's moved beyond this, like, consent manufacturing, right, of, like, Steve Jobs and these kinds of, like, you know, really preternaturally gifted marketers like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, right? They're not engineers themselves, right? They're marketers. And they did a lot to kind of make that uh, that moment of consent manufacturing for the world they wanted to build. But now it does seem like we're, we're heading towards a kind of uh, a, a real mask off moment where it's like, it's no longer about consent manufacturing, right? It's just coercion. Just, just open up and eat it, right? Cause like there's no other option. Uh, and, and so it, do, it does seem like there's a, a big shift going on here. Um, before we get into all the tech stuff though, I did also just very quickly want to say that, you know, I, I, I definitely do appreciate the, that kind of situatedness as well. Cause like, you know, Jeremy and I are from Mississippi. Um, and Jeremy lived in New Orleans for a very long time. I actually went to high school and graduated in Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, so I lived in South Dakota for like four years all through high school. And so, yeah, I mean, really coming at it from a, a, a place that is uh, different and not just in the the kind of locale of, of of New York, you know. No no offense to Ed, who's now a, you know a Brooklyn podcaster, but you know he's not from Ed, Ed's not from New York either. Ed's not from New York either. Uh, but you know, I I, I like that that there's that sincerity as well, right? Like the, it's very easy to be irony pilled. I mean, we're all irony pilled to a degree, but I think as well you do have to be very sincere, um, and I think just have empathy, like. It's almost ironic in in itself that the the kind of like inter like leftist internationalism can almost be in, within the U.S. as well, where where like anything outside of New York City or Los Angeles is considered international, right? And and you and you see that a lot in like some of the really um, abhorrent ways people talk about. Uh, things that happen in in the Midwest or in the South as this kind of like you know like this like there's like there's there's this cosmic moral calculus right where it's like well that's what you know you that's what happens you deserve that because you live in those in those red states or or you you voted in you know these uh these right wing conservative politicians and so when a tornado touches down. Uh, and destroys your city. Well, you know that that's God passing judgment on you, right? It, it's really abhorrent to see that kind of rhetoric so often coming from people with really big platforms. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say like it's really frustrating for me. I my um, my parents aren't very ideological. They've kind of like they uh, voted Democrats in the '90s and then under Bush voted um, uh, voted Republican. The COVID issue is interesting because like people aren't taking it seriously in like my hometown of Mandan, North Dakota. Like I go into a bar, if you go in there and David knows this too, like you go, you walk into this place and you have a mask on, people look at you a little bit weird. 
And, but at the same time, there are people that are there that are frustrated with that, right? Like, and a huge, and not just like uh, 9%, like probably a third to like a, a big chunk. Cause like, I mean, I know people that like, they're not very ideological and maybe even a little bit right wing, but they had a, a lung issue when they were growing up and they do not want to get COVID. So they're taking it seriously. And that, like that, that um, collapse. And what do those people think when they see somebody see like, oh, you red satyrs, that's what you get, Right the people that are make are, are messaging that they aren't thinking about that. <laughs> They're thinking about how it makes them feel. And, and it's, it's not even about like correction. Cause if you thought through it in a, in a little bit, nobody's, nobody would respond positive to positively to that message. I loved, I loved down South during, during Katrina. I was there during Katrina and my post Katrina experience living in New York was a lot of, smug liberals saying to me, well, doesn't that make your red state blue? <laughs> doesn't that make you want to vote in? And I'm like, look, you fucking dense motherfucker who I voted for. Doesn't make a fucking look of difference when you live in a fucking state where voters rights are fucking limited. There's complete disenfranchising of voters. And then on top of that, look at who the, the, the choices that were given. In many states, you have fucking elected officials that'll hold the same fucking office for 30 years because no one bothers running against them. And that is rampant all throughout small communities in middle America, regardless, north, east, west, south. Living in the south and being from a small podunk town and being looked at as a hick. You know, I'm from California in high school from Mississippi, and I got made fun of because I had a thick Mississippi accent that does come back when I drink. Um <laughs> Just because you're you you're perceived as like this backwater hick, you you can't have any any progressive type of politics, and we should stop with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that this um this is an old sort of playbook that emerges right with um and is one of the main is one of the many limitations of liberalism, right? Like it comes up every now and then. I think uh, even around like 2016, you were you saw the blue exit sort of bullshit, right? Where it was like. Mm-hmm. If you voted, if your state voted for Trump, then it was a uh, time we turned our back. Liberal states turned our back on them because we fund the massive infrastructure projects. We subsidize the schools. Our taxes cover all the real industry. We have the we have uh, the industries that or the industries that you do have are ones that we plan for you to have, right? And all you do is um, subsist or drain public treasuries and coffers. It's a really it's a wild viewpoint, I think, also that I hear, and as we talked about, don't want to infect anything else because it like it comes from the same people who raise the alarm about like the democratic project being threatened at any given moment when someone is being elected, but at the same time believe that you should like cede Loki from the union if you are a red state. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and, and ignore the hordes of people there that ignore the reasons why people may vote this or that way ignore the also or give up on any attempt to sway people or to build things that would like make people's lives better and as a result uh grow increasingly more insular i think right i mean liberal and liberals in of themselves are already pretty insular but this whenever this mindset emerges with the disasters with the elections i always feel like there's always a threat it in one way or another will poison our own projects right because so many of the because these people are like almost monolithic or hegemonic in the discourse right it's very easy for their arguments to slip in one way or another 
to other arguments that we're having, I think. No, I mean, I think that that's like very much on point. In fact, it was just like a, you know, random occurrence, but like the first left reckoning episode I think we did was actually on like the kind of like blue exit, like the Dem exit of like the country, like, Oh, they should have like, you know, the Yankee state, the the Northern States like secede in California. And then it's always gets funny when they start to pick who gets to come and who gets to to leave. Michigan leaves because (laughs) in 2016, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, but beyond that, I mean, like there's, there's a couple, I mean, this is a really important issue for me, though, because, you know, like I'm a socialist and I'm I'm like I'm a Southern socialist. I grew up like, you know, I'm not like a lot of the other people who I met in the media scene. Right. I, I, I'm i like I'm white trash, man. I'm trailer park. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm from working class communities where like, you know, people weren't really thinking about politics, not because they didn't care what was happening to them, but because like the world was sort of crashing down on them, whether it be just abject poverty, the police state, drugs, violence. Right. Like people were really struggling. And it, yeah, it does infuriate me to see people get really self-righteous about, you know, the way that people vote. Because frankly, in all the places that I've, I've lived in the South, despite them being very red places, most people you meet, they vote Democrat. And I don't think that that matters, by the way, if people should be getting aid or you should care about them or not. But like mm-hmm. people always act like it's just like 100%, you know, political opinion is 100% in areas. It's always a mix. But beyond that, um, like the, the bigger points are, are two. One, you look at California, you look at New York. Um, these are states that have had long periods of Democratic Party rule, and they are hellholes for working class people, right? Just in the same way that a lot of like Southern and red states are hellholes for working class people. So the point for me is that like my utopia is not just like one state, one, one party rule um, of the Democratic Party. Like that's like, you know, utopia for me. In fact, I see it and it's, it's uh, you know, inc- incredibly inadequate, right? So my political horizons are much bigger than that. And the second bit is this just like New York has a lot more money than West Virginia, right? And they love to point that out or Bama and all these other places. Well, why is that? Is it just like because people are smarter there or more keyed in? And this is, you know, I think this is like, uh, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about tech too. It's like, why is New York, you know, such a powerhouse? Well, it beca- it's because it has a huge financial center and the American state and the American military have basically constructed a system where they extract resources and labor from the rest of the world, right? And then they incorporate that into the New York financial markets. And then that money sort of trickles down, you know, it doesn't go to everybody, but that money is sort of brought to New York, even for, you know, activities that aren't happening, for example, inside the United States, right? So the reason that you have these financial powers is not because like this culture is necessarily better, right? Um, but because there is like gun in a bay and a financial system that flows money there. I mean, this isn't to like create distrust or anger between working class people of like New York and the rest of the country. Um, but it is just to sort of understand, especially when like liberals who like to do those like blue exit memes, like, well, if we left, you know, we would have all this money. And it's like, well, you took that money from the rest of the, the country, right? Like, you know, obviously we feel one way about fossil fuel extraction, but it's like literally like you take the coal out of the ground in West Virginia that goes into, you know, becomes currency and capital. And then that gets brought into New York, right? Like all of these things are built up off of mineral uh, resources of the rest of the globe and, and labor of the rest of the globe. Um, I don't know. It's just like that, the way that some people sort of ex- like exclude that from their their mm-hmm. perspective when they're making these grand denunciations of the rest of the country or the rest of the globe for that matter, it's just it always infuriates me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you really hit on it here where it really is this imperialist mindset, right? And it's really about like consolidating the imperial core, uh, which is why I think an internationalist approach is so crucial, but also to bring that back home, right? To bring that internationalist analysis back home, because yeah, there is no one United States, right? Even within the US, there is an imperial core uh, within the United States of, you know, the uh, of New York, of DC, of the Bay Area, uh, and then everywhere else within in the United States becomes a site of extraction for that imperial core. So you've got a periphery within the core, um, and that you know, with a country the size of the U.S., with a you know a global empire and hegemony the size of the U.S., like of course that's how it's going to happen, right? It's going to be concentrated. And I think that's also the kind of analysis that, you know, we, we try to bring the tech. And I think this is a, a, a nice segue as well to be like, you know, what is, what, what are these, these, uh, you know, these, these city states within the U.S., you know, where capital is accumulated and circulated? What are they, what are they doing with all that capital, right? <laughs> are, are they doing innovation? Are they doing progress? Are they raising up all of us uh, to, to their level? Hell no, you know, they, they, are, they are innovating new ways of extracting labor and extracting resources and creating capital out of thin air, right? This kind of uh, fictitious capital. Uh, and, and it's all just a game to them, right? It's just, it's a game of monopoly. Um, and, and they keep pass and go and keep collecting the $200 where all of us are, you know, landing on boardwalk and going to jail, right? Because we can't pay the rent. And, and, and it's, it's really uh, wild to, 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 you know, on TMK, right? Like we, you know, tracking the development of technology and capital to see how all of this is accelerating so much quickly, right? And how this logic of capital is accelerating. And so one of the, the what we're going to do in this, this episode and the, 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 the premium one that we're going to be recording with Matt and David right after this is just go through a couple, uh, uh, you know, headlines and stories that I think really emphasize and represent a lot of the things that, you know, capital is doing with the resources and labor that it's continually extracting from the working class, from communities of color, from other places, the periphery within the core. And one of the things that that seems to have just come out of nowhere and is exploding now um, is the rise of these uh, 15 minute grocery delivery startups, right? So it's like, it's no longer enough to have, you know, Postmates or DoorDash or Uber Eats, you know, delivering your, uh, your, your food or your groceries or your medicine, right? Now it's like, it needs to be faster. It needs to go quicker and quicker. And so like over the last year, um, cities across the U.S. and Europe and here I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm reading from a, a, a Bloomberg, a, 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 an op-ed in Bloomberg City Lab called The Dark Side of 15-Minute Grocery Delivery, which is looking at the rise of these like dark stores that are these like little mini warehouses within uh, urban areas. 
And it goes on to say that over the last year, cities across the US and Europe have seen a rapid rise in the number of dark stores, or many warehouses stocked with groceries to be delivered in 15 minutes or less, operated by well-funded startups such as Gitter, GoPuff, Joker, and Gorillas. Dark stores are quietly devouring retail spaces, transforming them into minimally staffed distribution centers closed to the public. So, and, and just in New York City alone, there are seven of these services competing for market share that have just come up out of nowhere. They're, they're, um, they're products of the pandemic and they're products of uh, capital looking for places to dump money. A lot of times they're sold in terms of like speed and convenience, right? It's like, you know, one of the uh, uh, founders of, of this store, Joker, it's also like, man, you gonna name your store, your, your 15 minute delivery app <laughs> Joker. Like, bro, I'm putting on my Joker no. makeup right now. <laughs> I, I saw that. I was like, what the fuck? Is this a bit? Is this a bit? Does this no, man understand what's going on? It's it's all a bit though. It is all a bit. The founder of, of Joker talks about how like customers first try us out because they forgot an ingredient. Then they use us the next night for all their dinner ingredients. Soon enough, they'll never be mm. going to the store themselves, right? It's like, but at the same time, you know, I think a lot of these things are sold in terms of this like addictive convenience, right? Or this addiction yeah. to speed that consumers have. But I really question that. I really question if if consumers actually want this, if we actually want this, nearly as much as capital needs this to be the case. I think that's also exactly the point, because if you look also, they that quote they use is from an interview with the founder in another outlet. And there they reveal, interestingly enough, that a lot of the talent from Joker specifically comes from Walmart, Uber, and software hmm. places that the core of their business model, one way or another, is to construct a desire or need for that sort of convenience. Right? They're not meeting demand. They're doing what Jobs loved to hail himself as a visionary for doing, which is like telling the consumer what they need and making that what they need and constructing that need. Right? As if that's a revolutionary thing and not like a massive act of destruction, of creative destruction, where you're narrowing all the possibilities into like, oh, it just so happens that my entire platform is catered to the thing that I've spent uh, or thrown mountains of capital at ensuring is the thing you will want or need or can only pursue. I really do think it's like it's just manufacture of this of this desire, you know, uh, above all else. Not a not like a need. We don't really need convenience, but it is drilled in our fucking heads over and over and over and over again to the point where it does feel like it. Yeah, particularly if you're overworked. Yes. And it's not like the world isn't really convenient enough already. Like frankly, like it is just like amazing like uh you know, I mean like the reason, for example, in New York City that you have like a mat, you know, an incredible amount of like bodegas and, and grocery stores and all these places like on every other couple of blocks, right, is just like building convenience into like, the, you know, the, the social spaces. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a bit of it that is certainly good. Um, I think that there's parts of it that are really extremely wasteful. Like, I don't know if people in Brooklyn really should be able to get avocados in like February. <laughs> you know, but uh, no, but beyond this, like it's, it's not as if like those worlds are not convenient um, enough already. And like just consistently sort of building up 
I, maybe I cook a lot, right? So like I've been in moments where like you forget the one ingredient that like you're supposed to have according to the online recipe. And what you learn to do is you learn to adapt and to replace and to substitute. Um, and, and it's sort of nasty. I mean, obviously like there's much worse things to get upset about this, um, you know, like the, the waste and the, the damage that this does to people's lives. But there is something that is sort of terrible about like that, that this kind of vision of the future that they're trying to put you know, force us into, right. Where like, we just have convenience and everything is sort of at our fingertips. Um, it like re- reduces our ability to be resourceful in a way that at least when it comes to cooking or like creativity, I think is a real shame um, culturally. Obviously the political and economic reasons sort of trump that, but I think it is also a shame as like, as a, what society do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a society where basically like anytime you see any kind of ro- roadblock, you pay seven ninety nine to sort of, you know, get the solution to you easier versus coming up with something like, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good trait to develop. Can anyone clarify though what society these apps want to live in? Because I don't quite I don't quite understand like the New York element of it. Like if I forget something, I can literally just walk to at mm-hmm. two or three different um, uh, grocery stores before that. And in, if I was thinking about this in like Bismarck, North Dakota, it's like you're not going to be able to do that. Good luck. <laughs> good luck making that work on that scale. So I, I don't quite understand. Like this is just seems like. Somebody sold a bunch of investors like, hey, we can be the Uber of groceries. It's almost their desire, right? Like they want to have the Uber of groceries in their portfolio more than that's even feasible. You're essentially selling people a fucking lie. I worked Uber. I worked the apps for a little bit. Ed knows from all of his writing, I'm sure you guys are aware too, with just like all the information that's out there. There have been times where I've picked up a delivery and like, picked it up and I was like, this has got to be too big, too good to be true. This is like a $20 delivery for fucking like, you know, a taco stand The people where it's like, <laughs> usually like they don't even put a tip on their order, mm-hmm. you know? So I go pick it up and it turns out that shit has been sitting there for fucking four hours and Uber just keeps adding more and more and more for someone to finally pick this fucking thing up. Or you'll read our local town subreddit and half of it is people bitching because they've ordered food from, uh, Chick-fil-A and never got it, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you don't put tips on your fucking orders. And then a lot of us, like I got in communication with some of the other Uber drivers and we decided we're just not picking up from certain places. And that just shows the power of, of, you know, solidarity and like organizing with people. And, you know, maybe these assholes who think that they could just throw whatever money at whatever problem they have to get their fucking avocado delivered to them in 15 minutes <laughs> get off your fucking lazy ass and go get that shit yourself we should be happy you're getting an avocado on fucking december i, I don't want to <laughs> jump in too much i just want to say really quickly like I, I i have noticed this you know living in a few different places like these these services from like uber to like this like they don't really like they don't work already in like new york right they're already like you know problematic there but like they really don't scale that well in a lot of parts of the rest of the country because like they have we haven't developed that kind of public infrastructure and again the ar- the argument is in new york like the public mm-hmm. infrastructure is there so that you can get things like you walk out your door if you live in a highly you know populated area like new york to get these things so it, it's it's not only just sort of like i agree with you matt like what kind of future are they trying to sell us uh, i think that is th- definitely like an open uh, question i mean they're definitely just trying to find a way to make you know some money from some investors in the short term but like when you actually try to force that too in a lot of other parts of, of the country, like your models break down so, so quickly um, because you, you even like even in mm-hmm. places that have like, you know, mass unemployment or underemployment crisis, like you can't sort of 
um, you know, produce the kind of army of like Uber Eats delivery drivers that like they need to sort of make these services work in the way that they try to sell them to people in the first place. I, I like Jeremy's rage <laughs> as somebody who has worked on the apps for a long time. It's just like, like, you know, you just feel enraged. But I, but I think you're exactly right here in terms of asking like, you know, can this scale up? What is the future being sold here? And I, I you know, I think the answer is to to can this scale up is obviously no. And I almost <laughs> think that's not the point, right? Like, I think that this is very much, uh, capital just looking for a place to dump its excess, right? There, capital has more money yeah. than it knows what to do with. Uh, they are just looking for places to dump money into and 15 minute grocery delivery sounds like a, a, a nice place to do it because the logic here is just to do the same thing, mm -hmm. but do it faster. Right. Like that's always capital's logic. And they are really trying to live up to, you know, Marx talks about the uh, the annihilation of, of time by space. Right. And I mean, that's really what's going on here is like we can annihilate time um, by just moving things faster and, and talking about the like, you know, well, how does this even work in a place where, you know, th there's bodegas on every street corner, right? I can walk down and get it faster than it's going to take them to deliver it to me. But they, they also play into this where, you know, a lot, a lot of what they're taking advantage of is, is that there were, you know, mass business closures during the pandemic. So there's a lot of empty retail space in urban mm -hmm. areas. And so there's a lot, that means there's a lot of cheap retail space for these um, companies to open up these dark stores, these, and, and these uh, ghost kitchens, right? These places that are not consumer facing, right? They're, they're meant to just be supply points for distribution. You know, what they, what they are really doing here is it, it is a, you know, it is about monopolization, right? It's about taking market share away and it's about devouring mm -hmm. the community, right? It's like, you know, it's about making this the only option. There is no bodega if you want to go, um, to, to, to walk down, right? Because it's all dark stores now, right? You can't go down and go into the store. You have to order it from the app. Uh, and, and that, you know, that's what they've been able to do through this massive in, in, uh, injection of capital is just open up all these stores, take up all this retail space that otherwise could be like a, a, a cafe or a bodega or a restaurant or something like that. Um, and, but I think we also have to, to, keep in mind that these things are flashes in a pan, right? These things are like massively subsidized by venture capital. They're not going to scale. They're not going to work. They're going to go away as quickly as they came in. But what happens when they go away uh, and, and all of the retail space that they had used up now that now the dark stores are empty, but no one else can afford to move into them, right? It's like, you know, the locusts die, but so does everything that they consumed dies along with it. And so it's like, you know, one is like, what is this world that they want us that they want to sell us, right? They want to sell us this world of like frictionless, immediate convenience. But the real world that they're selling us is one of the the post um, version of that, right? The post VC, the post startup, when all of them have dried up, they've, you know, Joker and gorillas and GoPuff have all failed, uh, but there's nothing left in their wake. Yeah. I think that's also an explicit aim that, you know, as we read on in this article, they talk about, I mean, like the article at first introduces 
the 15 minute delivery as disruptive and inevitable, and then says that the real problem is that cities don't have clear delineation between these quote stealth micro fulfillment outposts and the d- traditional commerce of bodegas, right? And so they're saying, like, look, we live in a post pandemic society. Cities are transforming. Uh, We're seeing vertical integration from these startups. Shouldn't we figure out how to transform our laws in ways that mirror how retail is transforming and mirror how e-commerce and on-demand delivery are transforming and, and recognize they're making obsolete brick and mortar retail? And so this nonsense, it's also interesting because they, um, there's one point where they say, look, like we've seen all of this before with ride hailing services. We know that it was an arbitrary scheme. We know that it's not really so much that customers are undermining the urban life and urban infrastructure for, for daily life. It's that these companies are taking advantage of it. But they're saying like, okay, they're returning back to that utopian rhetoric we talked about where they're saying, but they're disruptors. And so since they're disruptors, we need to figure out what to do about it, right? There's this one point in the article where it says for decades, Planners have mandated street-level retail zoning to enliven public spaces specifically because it enables the in-person transfer of goods and services. But as the proliferation of 15-minute delivery demonstrates, the question of what defines retail isn't so easily answered. Does it require space to be open to customers? Uh, Traditionally, industrial uses such as logistics, have been kept out of sight to support retail, not compete with it. Whenever, Wherever cities decide to draw the line between dark stores and retail, it's now painfully clear the silver bullet of zoning is losing its effectiveness. Rather than trying to club the disruptors with aggressive enforcement of existing flawed zoning, as Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer aims to do, Public officials should embrace this crisis as an opportunity to clarify the boundary between industrial and retail, or perhaps even create a new category entirely. And comes up with new ways you can basically cut the red tape. Maybe we cut the red tape by getting making it easier to get permits for retail. Maybe we embrace Singapore, <laughs> you know, and Singapore's <laughs> vision. You know, always I love it when when uh, they're just like, oh, maybe Singapore does it good. But you know, I think it's also clear here what the shape is, right? That the shape of things to come is people saying, look, it was horrible when VCs did this with ride hail and delivery and the traditional delivery services. But it's inevitable because of the pandemic. It's inevitable because of the decline of urban infrastructure. It's inevitable because of new changes in consumer patterns. So we should just move out of the way. Is that not exactly the same fucking argument that everyone wrote when singing the praises of every single tech company? Up until what 2014, 2015, when then they realized that they got sold a you know a line. Um, it's it's really interesting because I think this one sees itself, and we'll probably see more arguments like this that see themselves as we've learned from the past. We're doing a much better job. Maybe some regulation is good. We but we don't want to get in rid of of innovation or get in the way of innovation. But there's no innovation going on here, right? It's still arbitrage at the end of the day. No, I I hundred um- percent. Agreed, especially when we're talking about like, yeah, like this is not a like uh, a consequence of like a heightened state of like innovation, right? A golden age of innovation. Um, but what it is symptomatic of and where I think we should be really worried about this is like just note about, for example, like the assault on like, you know, the downtown or like the public space is not something that we should, you know, sort of treat as like a minor gripe. This is quite serious. Um, and, and this is something that, 
I, I think that they, some of these companies and, 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 and capital in general, like feels like they have a little bit of space with because of the pandemic, right? People can sort of say like, oh, if we make things more accessible to deliver to people in their private homes, right? In their private, you know, residences, um, then it is just somehow, you know, just in and of itself, um, a social good, right? And, and it's an extremely worrying uh, aspect, I think, of all of the things that we've seen over the past two years, like in like the kind of crisis moment when it comes to the pandemic, has been the attack on public space, right? And obviously, like retail spaces, you know, probably out, out of all of the, uh, you know, the ones out there is probably like our least favorite, but it is a critical part. I mean, you know, cities develop in the way that they do to sort of, you know, encourage people to, you know, to encourage foot traffic, to encourage, so, you know, people socialize in parts of the city, right? And that's something that we should really be embracing. Um, and, and not just in some kind of like idea of like preservation, but understand this is like a very important like political struggle because this is sort of coming out of, you know, however, whatever terms we want to put on it, um, you know, the Bernie movement and all these other movements of like a moment where it really did seem populism was like the growing and moving um, like political ideology of, of, of the time. And it really shouldn't surprise us so much that we're seeing capital now attacking um, even, you know, capital spaces, even like, ca you know, you know, spaces where like we were engaging in commerce in a social way, right? You know, interacting with one another. It shouldn't be surprising that they're actually trying to close that down in favor of the isolated, like the perfect neoliberal subject is somebody who's just sitting at home. They work from home and they get their food from, you know, one of these apps, right? You're not going to talk to anybody about how much you hate your job because it's all being watched, you know, since you're on Zoom now. You're not going to be able to even have that kind of basic interaction with people because they put the food outside your door and you, you know, I like, you know, like th this is a very serious, like evacuation of, of, of public space. Um, and, and, it, it, you know, we should understand as a tactic of capital, but also understand that it, it comes out of the weakness out of our, our uh, out of our governments to defend like publicly owned space, to defend like democracy, these kind of basic, you know, it, it comes out of a crisis of democracy as much as it comes out of a crisis of like capitalism in, in a pandemic, et cetera. And it is really depressing to see that two step mm. that Ed pointed out where the uh, um, regulators stop looking at these industries like people to be skeptical of and start looking at them as partners. Like right. we talked about like the Harvard's clean slate thing in the wake of Prop 22 and like, the, like we're just going to create a new classification for workers or like, I mean, the worst now is all the ads you get from Facebook. It's like, hey, you know what? We haven't done internet regulations in so long. Like, let's play ball. Like they... Like they like that sense of like, now we got, now we're part of, we're on the inside. We know where you guys are and that we're going to work with Democrats and Republicans to do common sense uh, reform here. Sure. This, this piece is in <laughs> Bloomberg city lab, but it is kind of pitched as this, like, you know, we're going to, we're going to really uh, talk about the dark side of this, but it all comes down to this very liberal, like Jane Jacobs style approach to, uh, yeah. Like, well, we just need, you know, uh, more, more lively sidewalk <laughs> traffic. Right. And, and that, and that's, that's the, only problem here right like that'll solve it but but you're exactly right and 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 david you really hit on something here too where the the thing that makes these like 15 minute grocery delivery um apps work is uh insane intense exploitation of labor like if you actually read reporting on what the working conditions are like in these dark stores 
it, it, it'll make, you know, it makes you blush, right? It really is the, like, the Amazon warehouse model taken and applied to everything, right? To getting your, your, your avocado in February in 15 <laughs> minutes or less, or it's free or whatever, right? Like hyper-tailorized, it's hyper-monitored and surveilled uh, and controlled. And, you know, it, it, it really is like the, you know, the AI boss is sitting there with a stopwatch uh, and saying, okay, you know, uh, the like literally like um in these dark stores like a, a a ding will go off when a new order comes in and that's like a a, a kind of a notice that okay oh yeah all all hands on deck you know you've got thirty seconds to fill this order and get it out the door right um and and it, it really is about creating i mean as so much of the gig economy stuff has always been but it's just really heightened over the last year or two um that it really is about creating a servant class right it's a class of servants who then serve uh, the people who are working from home and doing their data entry spreadsheet jobs on Zoom all day um, and, and never leaving the house, right? Like, it's quite explicitly about creating a class of servants. And, you know, so no surprise that, uh, you know, venture capital is dumping a lot of money into this because they're like, yeah, I want a class of servants, right? And and I want to democratize access to servants. Uh, you know, that that's... <laughs> and and. You know, the, the top, the top 20% of the population, everyone gets a servant, uh, and then the bottom 80% gets to have the privilege of serving. Uh, and that, I mean, that is the future, right? To talk to, to your point, Matt, like that is the real future that's being pitched here. Um, and, and, and it is a very anti-social future as well. It is a future where the, the urban core is just a bunch of dark stores. Um, you know, ideally you get it where they're literally dark stores, where they're lights out, where it's just robots, right? You don't even need the people to do it. And then you can shove all those people, uh, into the, internal periphery of the of the imperial core and forget about them like that's the future that's being mapped out here and i i can't help but think like this is really that like acceleration uh to an to an endpoint of platform capitalism where it's like you know like i said bef before no one wants 15 minute delivery nearly as much as capital needs 15 minute delivery to be reality I mean, I, I think to that to that point about the workers, then there's another piece I wanted to bring our attention to. This actually segues quite nicely where, you know, at least people are not laying down and taking it right. They're enraged, as we've heard from Jeremy, you know, the people actually working on the apps are enraged. Um, and there is actually, you know, some some broader demand coming in terms of like uh, wanting to know at the very least how these algorithmic bosses are making their decisions how are like what are the rates 
being set? What are the secretive systems being used to make something like Amazon warehouses work or to make something like these gig economy apps actually work? And, and we're seeing this broader push now uh, towards as uh, there's a piece in the, the Financial Times um, where titled workers demand gig economy companies explain their algorithms, right? And there's this broader push. And in fact, you know, California um, had some, some, you know, proposed legislation. I don't know if it went into effect or if it got passed or what, but where they wanted to, to mandate that companies like uh, Amazon um, make their, their, the rates set in their warehouses and the kind of algorithmic systems used to manage the warehouses and workers actually public so that they could be audited because there's a lot of power here that these companies have in terms of just not even telling people why decisions, why these automated decisions were actually made that have really, you know, material impacts on people's lives. And like this FT article goes through and, you know, starts with this uh, uh, story of, of this uh, Uber driver in London who, you know, over two years of working for Uber, had amassed nearly 7,000 trips and kept a flawless five-star customer service rating. You know, he was talking about when, when he heard other drivers complaining that Uber system was punishing them for no reason. He didn't believe them, right? He was like, my, quote, my feeling was this wasn't the whole truth. Surely they must be guilty of something, right? But then fast forward um, to July of last year, year and all of a sudden Alexandru, this guy, you know, driving flawlessly for Uber, started getting warnings from Uber's computer telling him he'd been flagged for fraudulent activity. And then another warning came two weeks later. And if he got a third warning, they were going to shut down his account. So he stopped using the app because he was afraid of his account getting shut down. And he was like, I have no idea why. Why is this happening? No one's telling me, right? He's like, I, I talked to people at Uber and they said, you know, well, surely you must have done something wrong. The computer is not wrong. You, what did you do wrong that you're not telling us, right? And it's, it's like the the power of these automated systems through that veneer that uh, of of objectivity of of of, of perfect uh, error proof. Um, decision making is like that's the real boss that you know uh, has control over over a huge growing uh, swath of the population's livelihood. But then it becomes yeah, like not rational at all. It's almost like you've like dropped a egg yolk into something and you're like reading that for si supernatural signs. Like what what exactly <laughs> happened? And it's like the reason that they have the reason that we switch to algorithms, I guess, from their perspective, is so we could displace and naturalize these decisions and not have to explain it right like that's the whole that's the whole point um and I, I just like one i was watching the show i don't know if people are familiar with it but it's on netflix selling tampa it's a reality show about a bunch of uh, women that have a real uh, real estate business and there's a whole friction in um uh, episode three or four where um the owner says you have a problem with me changing the commission and the uh worker says it's not that you change the commission that you just, or it's not the change in the commission. It's that you change the commission without any sort of like, you know, give and take from it. Right. And like, that is a, that fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. I do think we talked about this recently on left reckoning, like that sort of when uh, authority is just asserted, it, it really gets you on like a base level and it's, it's really uh, aggravating. I know Jeremy's got a story. 
Oh yeah, I definitely. I mean, I definitely have them, but I mean, before I get into that, <laughs> it also kind of reminds me of like, we were talking uh, in our episode recently that we did about DAOs, about policing on the blockchain, you know, there not being any gray areas. It's essentially just like pointing at a machine and saying, well, they don't have feelings, so they can't, you know, determine you know, you were running a little late or whatever, or blah, blah, blah. We're going to ding you for that shit. And then just pointing at the algorithm and saying, like, I, I'm sorry, man. I had nothing to do with that shit. That was the computer. Be mad <laughs> at the computer. Then cut to me out hitting a fucking computer with a baseball bat, like the end of fucking office space. <laughs> um, but I mean, I've, you know, I personally, like, I've had this happen to me going Uber, like kept a five star. Like I had a hundred percent on all my deliveries. And then in one week, got two ding deliveries and got my account disabled and spent fucking six hours on the phone trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. Only for them to say, well, you did obviously did something wrong. So you're being punished for that. I'm like, but, but what did I do? Yeah. Are you, are you upset that uh, I have a 9% acceptance rate or are you more upset that I, I work on a podcast where we constantly dunk on your bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fully expecting my, if I try to sign into Uber this week, my Uber account's going to be deactivated because someone heard this podcast and was like, all that motherfuckers talking shit again, disable his, his, uh, his Uber account. Let's see if he likes it when he can't earn any extra money off this app. And it's, and it's, Pretty horrible because in the U.S. it's largely unaccountable. Like, take note that this story is in London, right? In the U.S., the only places you can really have any sort of redress are in New York City and in Seattle, or is it Portland, where uh, there have been decisions that have allowed a sort of, like, company union of sorts to emerge. And then they provide services that function as an appeal, right? The IDG in New York is uh, mainly being the main one where like they meet with the company and try to petition for certain drivers who've made their case to be reinstated because they were unfairly terminated or fired. But like in Europe, in Europe, they had, you know, the the algorithmic management is both more necessary because they don't have the the glut of of reserve, you know, labor that they do in the United States, but also because uh, it's more fraught because there's the GDPR, right? They have data protection laws there that over the past two years, court cases have expanded uh, the relevance of them to gig work and algorithmic management, right? And so in the article, they write that under European data protection laws, drivers have the right to know whether and how they have been subject to automated decision-making. But so far, just 40 workers have received raw data on their working patterns, such as job acceptance rates, decline rates, and ratings. And no company has clearly explained, however, how the data has been used by their companies to make decisions, right? And so while they have stonewalled actual requests, right, the courts have been kicking up to higher and higher uh, levels, I think most recently to the European equivalent of the European Supreme Court, um, I think it's like the European Court of Justice, that this is a right that all the drivers do have, and that if companies do not start voluntarily re- you know, offering it, then the drivers can engage in larger and larger suits to sue the companies um, and force the data to be handed over and maybe even seek damages, right? And that opens up a can of worms because if if they're found to be consistently shirking that, then in Europe, they can have that aspect of their business model called into question cleaved by regulation, uh, cut down by regulators, where in a way that they cannot in the United States, because the United States both lacks a regular 
the regulatory teeth and the case precedent, but also the will to say that you can't do something if you're a corporation, right? Um, <laughs> which is uh, pretty important here because of how much power these companies have on their platforms to do whatever they want. When you are on their platform, you are in another world where they control. I think one way that I it was put nicely, it was there's a New York Times column by Jamil Bowie like the other week where at the beginning he was kind of framing it as like most workplaces are you know dictatorships essentially, authoritarian, you know, spaces that you enter in which you have no control or autonomy over your your uh, your work or your labor, how you, you know, are in the space and even honestly outside of it, because the way in which your life is dictated within the workplace and the expectations there can also have effects on how you live your life outside of the workplace, obviously. Um, and on platforms, I like to think of it as even more egregious, right? These are truly feudal, you know, arrangements and contracts and fiefs constructed by the platforms where your life is at the behest of an of a thing that's not even a human, right? So you can't even really appeal to it. It is like it is it is sovereign power in such a like a like a truly disgustingly right way right and to allow it i am encouraged by europe's moves to like stop and curtail it but it is also worrying that in the united states it does not seem really to be a lot of the discussions in one way or another are also like well how can we make it more humane how can we have this sovereign check-in with people how can we have the sovereign you know like be more grounded <laughs> in their lived experiences and not like get the fucking unaccountable power outside of your life right there's a section of this that just it almost feels like we're talking theology right yeah. you know it's like all these people it's like what have i done to anger god you know like yes. what kind of penance can i do to like free myself from their anger and it seems like America, this is just what we want to, this is how America wants to be represented, right? We got Bill Gates leading up all sorts of different <laughs> global agendas, basically being like the IP pirate. Mm-hmm. And like, like that's, that's how we decide we want to structure our transportation. We got Elon Musk with these just venture capital charlatans that are basically like the human embodiments of the like just desires of investors. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really mm. um, not great. <laughs> it does make me think as well. I mean, the the you know the, there's some like sociological evidence that the, the a general rise of anxiety or powerlessness in society is uh, tends to also be matched with a rise mm-hmm. in mysticism, right? Because people are like, I I don't know what to do. Like I I'll read the tea leaves. Mm-hmm. I'll do the rituals. Mm-hmm. Like whatever it is that you want me to do, man. Like like you know they're just trying to figure out like reverse engineer what it is to to please the machine right what do i need to do to please the machine and that's really what the this kind of relationship is and i think you know we talk a lot about the like profit motive of capital but i think we also cannot underestimate um the will to power that capital has as well, uh, you know, and a lot of times they are willing to sacrifice profit. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. you know something we talk about on TMK, but we don't talk about enough, which is that these tech startups and these tech companies are not yes. profitable. Profit is not what motivates these tech companies because otherwise their business models would look starkly different than they do now. Um, power 
Right. And control is what motivates these companies that, you know, it's so it's, it is a very much a Nietzschean will to power, not a Milton Friedman, you know, profit motive that motivates, uh, the, 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 these, you know, tech feudal lord. It almost feels like, uh, the price for the freedom of America is servitude to the rich man. You know, it's, uh, we're, it's like we're taught from an early age that if you're wealthy, you did all the right things, that like you made all the right moves in life. And let's forget the fact that gener- generational wealth exists. But everybody looks as a looks at a rich man as like he made his way in the world, and we should listen to what he have to says, even if it means putting ourselves over the barrel in the name of our own fucking freedom. Because he did it. Yeah, and like this yeah. is you know the 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 Peter Thiel zero to one. Um, when you look at you go back and look at that, it's like basically just do a monopoly and then you got him over a barrel. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's a truncated version of that, and it, it kind of depressed me. And we haven't gotten to this article yet, but just to maybe preview it, there's this Consumer Reports article about the price um, uh, communities face when Amazon comes in, and there's this part where it kind of depressed me because it was like, what what else can be done with like these sorts of funds? And it's create a startup incubator, and it's like. I good good luck with that. Like I think every community, if they want to start up incubator, can have one. But like that isn't it, right? And yeah. that we've kind of that's almost like cargo culty um, a little bit when uh, when that, that just depressed me a little bit. I, I mean, I think cargo cult is the exact thing here as well, is that so much of that is the way that technology is sold to us, right? As a cargo cult, that's the way innovation um, is, is, is structured in society, right? Technology is not something that, technology for the vast majority of people is something that happens to them, right? It's not something that happens with them or for them or by them. It's something that happens to them. And I, but I do think that it is wrongheaded to think the solution to the cargo cult uh, is to put startup incubators and, you know, uh, you know, to, to do the JD Vance model. That's all this is, right? Of like, all right, well, I'm going to be a startup uh, incubator in Columbus, Ohio, right? I'm an old-fashioned Midwestern venture capitalist, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and it's like, that's not going to solve these problems. It's not going to address structural imperatives that and drive that's what really drives me crazy because I'm not an economist. I don't look at this sort of data as, a, as for fun. But like, if you look at business startups over the course of the past like 50 years, it's just absolutely cratering and we have this entire culture of guys that is fetishizing the idea of startups as if it's the exact opposite as if it's like being the the proven way to get ahead now and that's clearly like you you publicize the guy who sold like a bit of intellectual property to one of like the giant monopolies but that's really like i mean the imagination stops there (laughs) when it comes to that basically yeah it, it really does strike me as well as as really selling this selling this dream because you know the startup incubator in like uh in in low income communities and and communities of color i think is also it is the tech version of saying you either got to learn how to play basketball well or rap well or sell a piece of ip to microsoft that's the only way you can get out of this neighborhood and uh and raise your position and status in life and it's like no like that it Adding another one of these unobtainable dreams and saying, if you don't do that, then it's because of your own failures is not solving anything. It's not providing any real solutions or material improvements to people's actual lives. It's also like, how many fucking startups do we need, man? I was walking over (laughs) here with the mic and I saw a fucking startup called Brook Live, where instead of 
um, renting rooms that give you a house somehow. I mean, come the fuck on. Like the, all of these startups also, one of the things I really deeply hate about startups is they pretend to solve what is ultimately a, a really deep political or social problem with smart arrangement of resources through the market and a fucking app. But you know how many more apps do we need to learn that they're actually just making every single almost every single problem worse, right? Airbnb making life in general for people who are residents of an area worse as they try to gentrify and infuse with tours more and more cities and make them accessible to them and turn them into experiences and nice little cute like content uh, slices of content as opposed to life for the people who live there. Whether it's like delivery services, as we just talked about for the top of this episode, and a good chunk of it, right? Whether it's attempts to do fintech and, and democratize finance by introducing more people <laughs> of gambling and, 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 and UIs that are just casinos, right? I mean, when has an app actually solved a social problem instead of just what it's really done is, it, I mean, it has solved the social problem. It's like, how do I as an investor... Uh, make what was previously an illegal profit legal, you know? And it's usually, you know, one quick trick, you know, that regulators and poor people <laughs> hate. All of this kind of, I mean, like the startups and like the the kind of um, idea that an app is going to solve your social problems is like something that's very personal to me, you know, here in Austin, Texas. Like, you know, I grew up, um, you know, in, in South Austin and I can't live in the neighborhood I grew up in anymore. In fact, like, it's funny. I mean, I, I won't bore anybody but um, w- with all the tales, but like, I love country music. And I love all these stories. And I'll drive through my old neighborhood and be like, okay, where this where this guy got shot fighting over like a welfare check, you know, just like poor people crime and poor people neighborhood. And now it's a $2 million house for some kind of tech investor from, you know, San Francisco's moved out there. You know, South Congress, where I, where I grew up, is now not only has it, you know, gentrified is the wrong word at this point, because it's just been paved over, you know, to build like a Nike factory store and I, God, I can't remember. There's some um, uh, Chelsea. How what, one of these kind of like you know super elite like financial uh, um, you know social clubs has been built up there. And it was like this is a place where you would go to like I mean one of these things is in like a place that was like an old titty theater. You know what I mean? A place where you go to watch like pornography. And now it's like <laughs> only you know for millionaires. Anyways, the point is like obviously things change, etc. Um, but. All that's happened here in Austin has, in, in my lifetime, has been this kind of idea that if you bring the tech people in, if you bring the tech in, if you bring it into the city, it's going to make life better for for the people. Um, and that hasn't been the case, right? You've only just seen uh, poor people and, and people of color just essentially be forced out um, of the community. And now the new people who they're bringing in, like Elon Musk, my personal arch nemesis. I'm, I know that we probably don't have fans here, but like at this point, seeing him just like do things around also drives me crazy. They moved out here and they built this huge factory um, outside of Austin. Um, you know, right, like right on the border, um, into an area that like really needs some kind of public investment. And they negotiated with the school board there, um, to pay no taxes to go to the schools, but don't worry y'all. Um, they have a, they'll have a mentorship program where like five kids from this poor oh, community can off. go you know, and like and compete for the chance for like, you know, daddy Elon to like give them a job oh. potentially. Right. Like the problem is, is like, oh, and we've been sold this lie for a really long time. And, and the concept, 
I guess like it's, you know, we're, tr- you know, we, we probably are a little bit of a biased crowd when it comes to trying to figure out like something that an app has solved. Maybe there's something out there, but I can tell you right now that it's much easier to point to like the social cost of, of, you know, app based economy, like tech based economy than it is to any of the solutions that they're supposed to be, you know, providing for us as a society. All I can think of is, is David, they paved paradise and put up a Amazon yeah. warehouse. You know, <laughs> it's not even a parking lot anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, You, you, you gave us a great teaser for, you know, there, there's a big investigative report and consumer reports on the environmental racism of Amazon's warehouses and where they're building them. I think we're at time here. There's obviously a lot of energy and a lot more for us to talk about. Um, but I'm going to wrap us up on the free episode here. And in, uh, you know, left reckoning fashion, we're going to get yeah. into the post game on Patreon. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, David, Matt, where can people find you? Where can they find Left Reckoning? What would you like to plug? You can find us. Um, Left Reckoning is easy to find. It's Left Reckoning at YouTube, at Left Reckoning on Twitter. Um, I'm at David Griscom on Twitter, and Matt's at, at uh, Matt Leck on Twitter as well. You guys should also check out Matt's great podcast, Literary Hangover, uh, which oh, yeah. is a really fun, different perspective uh, to check out as well. We're going to get into uh, based John Milton, I think, uh, before the oh, New yeah. Year. So uh, look forward to that. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. If, if, if you like the TMK book club series, you, you'll love Matt's literary hangover as well, where it's just like in depth <laughs> discussions into books and into, you know, individual writers and thinkers. Like, absolutely. So, you know, if you, if you like listening to TMK, you're going to also love listening and watching left reckoning uh, you know, left reckoning you you can actually see them <laughs> yeah, youtube show they're on another level than tm cameras that hook up to our computers <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> so find matt and david find left reckoning uh thank you for listening you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for premium episodes every single week, including part two, the post game of our discussion with Matt and David, where we're just going to get even deeper into the discussion. We've got a lot more to talk about, so find us there. Um, and until then, later. Adios. Some cats grow by the laws of the wild. Some learn slower and lag in the mud. Some stand up in defense of a style. Some let the big dogs eat them up. At exactly 11:35 p.m. on January 21st, I fell asleep sound. At exactly 11:35 p.m. on January 21st, some shit went down. Now, Benny was a New York City rap kingpin. Five borough fame guaranteed the itch pigskin. Raided near the Brooklyn Naval Yard. Jokes in undercover. When they asked him what he played, he said, "You're fucking up my color." Okay, Jose's working in a slaughterhouse. Said he's living in the hood, but he wants to get his daughter out. Slipped off a ledge and fell into a machine. Another dead immigrant. That's the American dream. Miss Molly helpless. Made a penny with a data entry temp gig. Overqualified with the rent stick. Red brick bash with a text brick green. Like I've entered my data right into your screen. Jane went insane. She's an anchor woman. Sick of pushing skewed information and abusing the nation. Had a few options. Either jump or run. Critical ways. How waving a gun. Time for
for C-H-A-N-G-E Held a knife to the VP on TV She demanded that the format be expanded Beyond fair, everybody clear, understand? This machine killed